hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes, their age, the way they speak? Would you recognize a 13-year-old boy who gets into fights at school? Not because he's a boy, but because he's hungry. Or a two-year-old girl who cries all night? Not because she's sick, but because she went to bed without enough to eat. Or maybe a nine-year-old boy who hopes a friend invites him to a sleepover? Not for fun, just so he can have dinner. Or a 15-year-old girl who goes for walks over lunch so her friends won't know she doesn't have anything to eat? I am the one in seven American children who struggle with hunger. Kids you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am child hunger in America. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 food banks strong. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny. When I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes. When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. This is Scott Richmond and Arnie Sherman. You're listening to What Do You Know on News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. Arnie Sherman, good Sunday morning to you. Good morning, Scott. I'm very excited today because you have a longtime friend of yours. I didn't know you hobnobbed around with such a fluency, but you're a good longtime friend, Chris Perino, who was the former attorney general of the state of New Jersey, is going to join us today. And and there's lots of things that uh, we want to talk about with him. Absolutely. Chris is a dear friend, and as we as we've talked about, um, we like guests like this because while he's from New Jersey, it's applicable to our community as well in terms of talking about police reform and talking about just community involvement and proactive leadership. And That's I guess very important. I mean, he just wrote an article, and the, the article essentially said you can't legislate public trust in police. And that's that'll be an interesting, you know, talking point for us to try to figure out what's happened with the erosion of trust since George Floyd. You know, it, it was going on a lot before that, but it really exacerbated under uh, the George Floyd case. Absolutely. Well, when we come back, our guest, our guest will be Chris Perino, the chair of the litigation department of Lowenstein Sandler and former attorney general of New Jersey. Back after this, as local Missoula. Every weekend, Diane Beck of Windermere Real Estate presents Missoula Real Estate Today on News Talk KGVO. Diane and her guests provide interesting information about the local housing market, along with industry-related topics and trends. Missoula Real Estate Today, presented by Diane Beck of Windermere Real Estate, Saturday mornings from 8 till 8.30, and again Sunday mornings from 10.30 till 11 on News Talk KGVO, FM 98.3 and AM 1290. 
you're ready to get out and get going again. Yeah, but does your car feel the same way? Hmm, good point. For fast, reliable, honest, and reasonable vehicle checkups and repairs, better stop at Brian's Auto first. Tune-ups, brakes, AC service, transmission, leaks, stalling out, you name it. And if your check engine light comes on, they do free diagnostics to help pinpoint what the problem might be. No obligation. The right smaller shop for your car is Brian's Auto. Just off West Broadway in Palmer behind Gomer's U.S. Diesel. 549-9215. The Bell Pipe and Tobacco Shop presents Soulmates. Hello, Hello Otis. Otis. We, we are Jim and, and Judy. We, we are, are here, here to find the most perfect cigar to match our most perfect love. Lucky you. Our most perfect friends, Tom and Tina, told us about your walk-in humidor. It's right over here. Oh, Otis, our hearts are pounding. Your humidor is like a tobacco-lined love nest. It pampers a stunning variety of world-class cigars. It's the perfect place for two cigar lovers like us. That's great. Oh, there it is, the most perfect cigar for our most perfect love. A Rocky Patel. What did you say? I don't even know who you are anymore. I don't bother. How about I ring them both up? Of course. We're sorry, Otis. You've made us realize that love is not always perfect. The Bell Pipe and Tobacco Shop, 215 West Broadway, downtown Missoula. It pampers a stunning variety of world-class cigars. Now is the time to think Kubota Orange. Big Sky Kubota's open and ready for spring and summer. Move up to Kubota zero-turn mowers, Kubota compact and full-size tractors, utility vehicles, excavators, and skid steers. Take advantage of zero down and zero percent finance offers now through June 30th. See us or go to KubotaUSA.com for more information. Cash sale discounts also available. Work with the local Kubota guys, John and Ben at Big Sky Kubota, three miles west of the Missoula Airport on Highway 10. Think Orange. Arnie, we are back with our guest, Chris Perino. As you remember, Chris is the 60th Attorney General of the State of New Jersey from 2016 to 2018. He is also the chair of the litigation department at Lowenstein Sandler Sandler in New Jersey and the Newark Police Foundation. And he's a dear friend of mine from way back when in Summit, New Jersey. Chris, welcome. Arnie, thanks. Good to see you, Scott. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. We're usually not in this highfalutin air of attorney generals and things like that, but I'm glad uh, Scott lured you into uh, joining us. Well, I'm glad to be here. I was at a retirement party uh, for a friend of mine in law enforcement, and someone got up to toast him, and he said, I've never seen so many has-beens in my life. (laughs) Uh, So you're not not with a current attorney general, but... um, (laughs) But I had the privilege of uh, of being Attorney General of New Jersey for a couple of years. Well, you've had a very interesting career because when you were Attorney General, you were Attorney General for uh, Chris Christie. And then later on, you turned around and started giving advice to Phil Murphy, the current governor. So you've been able to uh, develop relationships on both sides of the aisle. That's, that's true. And, um, you know, sometimes being in the middle means you're going to get beat up by both sides. Yeah. And um, I experienced a little bit of that along the way. But, you know, I've never been political. Um, I'm not affiliated politically. And, um, you know, I've, I've never picked sides politically. So, you know, I'm just a lawyer. And that's that's what I was when I was attorney general. And it made the job a lot simpler because I wasn't worried about, um, you know, worried about getting votes for myself or for anyone else. You're just there to do the job and try and do the right thing and, and be on the right side. 
And, and you've never had aspirations for public office? Never. I mean, you know, as I learned the hard way, uh, when you're, when you're focused on getting votes, it becomes difficult to be focused always on doing the right thing. It's hard enough to do the right thing to begin with. Right. It's hard enough to, to be able to figure out some of these issues are really complicated. It's hard enough to figure out which side to be on. When you start layering in, uh, you know, which, which if I take this position, who's going to vote for me? That, that's not a place I'll ever be. And, um, it's just not something that, that I ever want to do. I respect people who do it. I just, <laughs> it's not something I ever want to experience. Well, you get, yeah, as you mentioned, you get killed from both sides. I remember when Governor Christie you had a fairly decent relationship with Barack Obama and Obama came to New Jersey. And I mean, he is the president of the United States and you're governor and you, you know, you need to work with him. And then, you know, Trump gave him such a hard time about that. And the Republicans later on gave him such a hard time about, you know, being nice to the president of the United States. I mean, it's not a hard thing to do, but in this era of such strident political divides, you could, you get slaughtered for almost everything. Yeah. And look, you know, if, if governor Christie was here, he would say that he was doing what he had to do for the state he was governor in. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, the state was like a war zone and we needed help. And the truth was that the federal government was in a position to provide that help. And Governor Christie went and got it. So, you know, at that moment in time, he was as popular uh, a governor as there was in the 50 states. Of course, you know, a lot of Democrats in New Jersey. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it really is a blue state. Um, when, when he started running for president and just dealing with the issues that one deals with in a primary, um, it was a, a matter that he took a, a lot of heat for, obviously. Yes. Yeah, so I think that's an important point to make. Most people forget when you talk about red states and blue states, even in the reddest of states like Texas, there were more people in Texas that voted for Biden than in like 40 other states. Yeah. You know, and it, you know, even though there's a majority in one direction or the other, you have, if you're a governor, you have to in general want to be useful and supportive of the entire population of the state, not just one, you know, ticket or one side of the ticket. That's, it's really true. And, you know, it's the, these jobs on the executive side, uh, not the legislative side, you know, they require you, you have to run something. You're really mm-hmm. in charge of something. People's, lives and livelihoods depend, you know, on you making good and right decisions. It's not with all respect to those in the legislature, you know, that you don't, you don't have to run anything. You don't right. have to worry about a budget. Right. Um, you just pick an issue and have at it. Well, Chris, um, Chris were your pre- were, were, I, I remember you telling me this very vividly that having come from the private sector to then take a public job, you were equipped, right, to kind of look at the world a little differently than, let's say, somebody who might have been a career civil servant. And what was that like? I, I, you know, it was honestly just such a great opportunity. When I went into the AG's office, I went in uh, in charge of the civil division, not as attorney general. Um, And I was really running the law firm for the state. And it was an awful lot like the job I had in private practice for years. And so it was a tremendous head start. And what I was able to do was be a little bit more practical, I think, a little bit more, you know, sort of goal oriented and a little bit less philosophical, a little bit less tied up in the bureaucracy 
and more focused on, you know, how are we going to get these things done? Because when a, when a client on the private side calls and says they want to do X, they don't want to hear all of the ways in which it's hard to do X. What they want to hear is, you know, I want to get from point A to point B and I want to get X done. And bringing that into government service really uh, helped me a lot. And, and I had no aspirations or thoughts about ever becoming attorney general. Um, I didn't know Chris Christie when I got to state government, um, but uh, we ended up getting to know each other really well. Uh, and um, and I was blessed with the opportunity to do that attorney general job. And, you know, it's it's probably the best job I'll ever have. Certainly the best job I've had so far. You made a good point about talking about the AG's office in a state being a law firm for the state. And for our listeners, how big was that law firm in New Jersey? Yeah, so just the civil lawyers uh, numbered 500. So, you know, that's a that's a big law firm. That's even, a big law firm. Even by, uh, you know, New York metropolitan standards. Um, and, uh, and I used to say it was like, um, you know, uh, trying to be the captain of a battleship. You know, it sometimes moved a little slowly, but when you pointed that thing in the, you know, in a direction, it could get the job done. And, uh, you know, it's a great group of people. And I think a lot of states are set up the same way. The one thing that's a little bit different about New Jersey than the vast majority of other states is that the attorney general is appointed and not elected. Mm-hmm. So that's all I different. had to do was be, you know, uh, the selection of one person to be nominated, then I needed the support of the majority of the Senate in order to get confirmed, which thankfully we got. But, you know, not being elected gives, you know, somebody just tremendous freedom to do, uh, you know, to do what you think is best. So I'd be remiss not to mention that you take office as AG and then one of the weirdest political legal issues emerges, you know, Bridgegate comes out, which seemed like, it seemed like, I mean, there was an issue there, but it seemed for me from looking in to be kind of blown out of proportions. What's your take on what happened with that? So, uh, you know, um, when I talked about not knowing Chris Christie, I I got to meet him when I was in my first job in the attorney general's office. He offered me the job to come work for him directly as his chief counsel on a day that um, I ended up starting that job was the day that Bridgegate broke in the media. Um, I, you know, it was like something I had never experienced. I have to say I had never seen or heard anything like it. Uh, I found myself, you know, walking with Governor Christie the day after that scandal broke into the mayor's office in a town called Fort Lee, which is where the George Washington Bridge meets uh, New Jersey. And I'd never seen so many reporters in my life. I had never seen... Um, that kind of media crush anywhere in any, in any context. And that media attention continued basically for the next four months. It was the New Jersey star ledger is the local paper. Uh, another one is the Bergen record. Uh, those, that, those two publications probably have, you know, 80% of the readership in New Jersey above the fold front page every day for like nearly six months. And it would be, you know, and, you know, not to mention the New York Times. Um, it was just nonstop. The, the, the spotlight, the searchlight, it, it just, it just didn't end. Um, and I now, you know, I've, I've dealt with scandals now for, uh, a couple of different governors, right? I dealt with 
the Bridgegate uh, mess, and I, I represented the Murphy administration in connection with a legislative investigation. And I'm not even sure you can call it a scandal at this point because when I say to folks, oh, you know, I represented the Murphy administration recently in connection with the matter that uh, I represented them in connection with, people generally don't know what I'm talking about. Right. Um, now, I like to say that's because we did a great job and right. we got through it and, and uh, it was over and done. Part of the reason uh, no one knows uh, what that scandal was about is because the media didn't cover it the same way. And yeah. why did the media just seize on, you know, Bridgegate for four months? Well, look, you know, Chris Christie was, uh, at the time that scandal broke, the front runner for the Republican nomination for president of the United States. Um, there were a lot of interests uh, that were aligned that wanted to see him not be the front runner for the Republican nomination. Uh, and I think that um, combined with the media market that we're in um, made it just a very, very difficult circumstance. And, uh, you know, and one that, you know, it's hard to appreciate, you know, we live through it here in, in the New York metropolitan area. Um, I traveled a little bit with Christy uh, when he was running for president in up New Hampshire and, and around the country. He would never get asked about Bridget. Right. Right. Never. I mean, I think he did, I don't know what the number was, maybe, you know, 70 or 80 or 90 town halls in New Hampshire. He didn't get asked about Bridgegate until like 92. I'm sure I had that number wrong, but it just was not a focus on the campaign really. Um, but boy, was it a blitz here. Very yeah, tough. It was crazy. Yeah, very tough. So, Chris, you're now back in private practice. You're uh, working for Lowenstein Stadler. And you've been recently writing about police reform. And uh, you actually, uh, I read a couple of the articles. I read one of the main articles where you said that you can't legislate public trust in police. So what does that mean? So, you know, I guess it, it's it's a good segue for for what I mentioned before, when we talk about legislators and lawmakers, it's, you know, it's very easy to say we're going to fix this problem, the, the problem of police brutality and, and the violent police encounters that we've seen so much of lately by passing new laws. We're just going to pass new laws and that's going to fix the problem. And mm-hmm. All of a sudden people of color aren't going to be worried about their interactions with police and police are going to stop hurting people. The truth is that, you know, some of those legislative efforts will be useful, um, provided they're balanced and not unfairly one-sided, you know, either way. But the core, uh, really the, the nub of the problem is that at the moment, and over time, of course, this has been a problem for many, 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 many years, is that there is a lack of trust between police and the communities that they're sworn to serve and protect. And what happens is when you have a nervous civilian who's getting pulled over by a, you know, Montana state trooper or a New Jersey state trooper, that civilian is more likely to do something that is going to cause the police officer who himself or herself may be nervous, especially at a time like this where police are under such incredible scrutiny. And when nerve endings are exposed, and the cops are nervous and the civilians are nervous is when inadvertent things happen. 
Now, I'm not talking about George Floyd, right? That's a whole nother uh, category um, that I think everyone who's ever spoken about it publicly agrees that it's not possible to explain what happened there in a way that excuses the conduct. And obviously he's been convicted, uh, you know, an extended period of time in jail. But but many, many, many of these incidents where you have interactions with police and community members that turn violent are very easy to avoid. And and my point has been when I was attorney general and still is that tension, that fear on both sides of the equation um, is what drives a lot of these unfortunate uh, and really dangerous encounters. So, you know, everything that we can do, and it doesn't start when you're an adult, right? You have to, you know, police have to uh, be with and uh, in front of kids in schools uh, in a way that's not confrontational. You know, if your first exposure to the police is a police officer coming in and arresting a family member or, you know, uh, doing something that doesn't make you happy, um, you're going to form a view that's negative. And, uh, and that, unfortunately, is the way this relationship between police and the communities has gone for many, many, many years. And, you know, I could talk for a long time about this subject, but I said in that article um, that I had this experience back when I was first uh, appointed AG, and I went to a school to visit young kids in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And, you know, we were having fun. Uh, I was playing clothes, obviously. AG in New Jersey doesn't have a uniform. Right. Um, I was with you know, my, my typical, you know, security detail, but those guys aren't in uniforms either. They're just, they look like mm-hmm. cops, but they're dressed like, uh, lawyers. Right. And, um, uh, you know, all the kids were, were really fun and having a good time. Except this one girl who wouldn't even look me in the eyes. And finally I, I sort of, you know, cornered her and said, you know, what's going on? You know, I tried to, to give her a high five or whatever. And she looked up and she says, I don't like cops. You know, and I, I, you know, and for, for a guy who wasn't in law enforcement my whole career, um, you know, I was a private practice lawyer. It, it really impacted me. It was super helpful to have that interaction early on because I realized that, you know, she's one kid, uh, in a classroom of 10. Let me tell you, there are a lot of kids who are at, you know, three, four, five years old forming those views. And it's very hard to, unring that bell, you know, so doing the work early um, and getting police in touch with, with civilians and kids is something that I think is really important and um, something we have to do more of. Well, you know, it's interesting when you mentioned that and started talking about it, I would just flash to a scene from West Side Story where they have a song called Officer Crumpke. And even though the guys didn't like him in the song, they knew his name and he was the beat cop. And we used to have beat cops. And you would know who they are. And yet they were not necessarily, uh, you know, they were a symbol of authority, but they didn't approach you that way. And you, you, you felt kind of comfortable with that. With, you know, community policing changing and communities changing. You, you know, changing, you, you, you know, you don't know your neighbors in a lot of places. And there are a lot of transient cities. It's hard to establish, you know, that kind of relationship. Sure, you can send them into the schools. And you can do some of those sorts of things. But, I mean, we have a national, you know, I think, crisis, you know, on our hands in this issue. And it gets exacerbated, you know, and politically in many places. 
And you have even, uh, you know, the racial, you know, underpinnings of it. You know, is the system fundamentally racist? Are drug laws written, you know, to adjudicate, you know, uh, people in a fundamentally racist way? And, uh, you know, it's very complicated. I saw where I was watching uh, a few weeks back when uh, when Senator Scott, Tim Scott of South Carolina, gave the response uh, to President Biden's speech. And and he's a Afro-American the only Afro-American Republican, a Republican in the Senate. And he said, we're not racist. But then he went on to say he'd been arrested. He'd been stopped by the police 18 or 19 times. Hmm. I've never been stopped by the police 18 or 19 times. I don't think Scott has been stopped like that. So um, listen, those things are hard to deal with. But here's the thing. And, um, you know, it's not it's real. The perception is what matters. And although the vast majority of police officers are good intention, the vast majority of police officers are not racist. Okay. Um, but the, there are bad actors out there, right? And you have the bad act of several, um, and lately more than several, perhaps it colors the entire profession and the perception though of the communities that, um, uh, that feel most impacted by these issues is real. These yeah. people aren't faking it. They're truly terrified. And, you know, the, they talk about, um, uh, I learned about when I was AG, the talk, right? The talk that, that parents and grandparents of people of color give to their kids about what to do and not to do when you get pulled over. It's a sad and, commentary. And, and, and how careful, extra careful you need to be. Um, and that's, that's horrific. It's horrific. And, um, and so, you know, what you said before, Arnie, is part of it too, right? Just, just showing up and, and, you know, handing out slices of pizza is not going to get it done. But that, those efforts where you're, where you're with and present with kids in a non-confrontational way, where kids can have experience with police, where they see can see that they're human too, um, combined with initiatives that help encourage uh, individuals to apply for and obtain jobs in the neighborhoods where they live, go to work in the police force where you grew up, makes a tremendous difference. Um, you know, culturally, you understand the culture, you know the community, you know the people, and um, and and you know that. That is a great, uh, you know, a great way to try and move things forward too. Let's do a quick ID. Our guest is Chris Perino, chair of the litigation department of Lowenstein Sandler and the Newark Police Foundation and former attorney general of the state of New Jersey. Chris, what prompted you to start the, you know, and get involved with the Newark Police Foundation? How did that all, uh, you know, what was the birth of that? Yeah, so um, the Newark Police Foundation had been around for a number of years, but it, it had sort of fallen dormant. Um, and uh, I, uh, during my time as AG, became friendly with uh, with the mayor of Newark, Ross Baraka, and the then director of public safety, Anthony Ambrose. Uh, and it was uh, pretty clear that they could use a little bit of assistance um, and that this foundation was really not uh, doing much. And so, um, I had, uh, effectively kept my powder dry on the philanthropic side, trying to figure out where I could be helpful, not to just go sit on a board somewhere, but to actually 
participate in something that I knew a little bit about. And, uh, the Newark Police Foundation seemed like the right place to, to put that focus and effort. And so one of the things that we're working on now, um, to kick off the new foundation is a fundraising campaign that will get cops out now as the pandemic recedes, right? For all these months when you needed that community engagement, uh, on the part of law enforcement the most, you know, following, uh, murder of George Floyd and all these other incidences that we've seen and read about, uh, when you needed to be out there face to face the most, they couldn't be. Um, and so we're trying to jumpstart, uh, that engagement again. Uh, we're going to set up a competition among the seven precincts in Newark and we're going to fund, uh, initiatives that each of those precincts will create. Uh, they'll document the work that they do and they'll, uh, you know, sort of do a video catalog of the, uh, initiatives as they're set up. And then in the fall, we'll judge which one's the best and we'll fund that initiative citywide. But in the meantime, while we're, you know, having this quote unquote contest, uh, the police officers will be getting in touch with the kids. And so, um, hopefully we'll be off to the races and, and getting cops back in touch with, uh, with, uh, the children. You bring up Newark and the Newark foundation. And I was, you know, on, on a positive note, I was very surprised to see that in 2020, Newark, a city of almost 300,000 people, not one police officer fired a shot in the entire year. How did that happen? When, uh, when Anthony Ambrose, the police director called me, um, right at the end of last year to tell me that, I, I, I just couldn't believe it as a, as a statistic. No. Where a police officer does not discharge a weapon in a city that large with that many cops with the history that that city has had. Sure. But what has happened in Newark um, is something I think more and more people are focusing on. It's also happened in Camden, a much smaller city, but um, has also had tremendous success over the last 10 or so years in terms of violent crime, you know, dropping through the floor. Um, you know, the numbers of shootings and murders dropping, you know, I don't know what the percentages are off the top of my head, but, you know, more than 50%. Um, and it's, you know, it's, a, there are a lot of different factors, obviously, that contribute to the, to crime reduction, but Newark, uh, Camden have done incredible work. And even if you look at what happened in the wake of, uh, the murder of George Floyd, where there were violent protests just across the river in Manhattan, in in New York City. Newark did not have violent protests. You know, Newark had protests, but they didn't turn violent. Um, You had the police officers out there marching with the protesters, and you had a mayor who has, in, in in a way that I have not seen very often, been able to connect both with the community, this is Raz Baraka, but also be someone who the police department trusts. Law enforcement trusts them and the community trusts them. What, what is the, what, what do we think, what do they think is prompting that or is, what's that about? Because that's behavior that people would not associate with a community that had been under so, there's been so much violence. How did yeah. it turn around and how long did it take? Yeah. Well, it's taken, it's taken many, many, many years. And in the last, Five or six, it's been one year after another with double digit reductions in, in crime in many categories. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it really takes is strong leadership 
and focus and follow through. Um, and crime reduction is something that is complicated and different people will take credit for it and based on different factors. But when you look at what happens where or what happened when, you know, protests were, were exploding across the country and fires were burning in, you know, a lot of our cities, Newark, right? We're, we're, we're famous for riots, right? Right. Peaceful, orderly. Um, and it really is, is as a result of what I mentioned off the top, which is the trust that the community in Newark has in its leadership, including its law enforcement leadership. So when you can have police standing shoulder to shoulder with protesters, that's, you know, that, that's something. And you had a mayor who had the trust and respect of the community and also was able to communicate to the cops that he had their backs. Well, you also had a mayor who was an educator at one point in his career. Yeah. You have to assume that he took a slightly different approach and Mm -hmm. had the experience from, from his background to try to create a, a different climate and environment in the community. Yeah. And he's done a really good job with it. Um, you know, and, and from the, from the law enforcement point of view, you know, cops are, are really afraid right now, right? They're afraid that if, and again, I'm talking about the, the cops that are right. well-intentioned, you know, police officer goes out and makes a mistake, let's say in Newark, um, you know, this mayor is not going to be so quick just to throw that cop under the bus. Um, but you know, it's a very, very difficult time to be a law enforcement officer on the street. Um, uh, because in many communities, the first thing that happens, something goes sideways before any judge has a chance to evaluate it before criminal charges are even brought. You know, that person is, is, you know, uh, thrown to, you know, thrown to the side. Now, in some cases, you can tell because there's video. Thankfully, uh, you know, a lot of the police departments are now equipped with body cams and you can tell them it's straightforward. But in many of these situations, it's not as straightforward. And I think what police will tell you is that, you know, they're the ones who are going to be, um, you know, sacrificed and victimized. And of course, you have the community on the other side saying, no, 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 no. It's the police that's doing it to us. And so, you know, we gotta, we gotta try and stop that and get back to a place more toward a place where the cops and the community is working together. Yeah. It's sort of an unprecedented um, situation where you do have not just a few bad apples, but you have a, a small percentage of police departments carrying so much of the weight of how the public discourse about the issue gets, you know, trans, you know, transmitted. Listen, it's so true. And, you know, I, I think if you ask, um, you know, the, the law abiding, you know, citizens of the city of Newark who are, you know, trying to earn a living, raise their family and, and do the right thing, whether they want the police departments defunded or not, I don't think you're going to have too many takers on that proposition. You know, I think most, most people, again, people who are, who are trying to do the right thing, who want their families to stay safe, um, are not interested in the police disappearing. Now, do they want and deserve accountability? Do they want and deserve police who look like them and understand their culture and maybe grew up in their neighborhood? 
Absolutely. Um, you know, all of that's important and, uh, and needs to be, you know, an ongoing focus. Um, but you know, this whole notion of defunding the police, it was a head shaker for me when the conversation first started. And I think that's, you know, not too many people are talking about it seriously at this point. No. And I think it was, a, it was whoever that was a PR nightmare. I think the original conversation wasn't really eliminating the police department. It was using some money, police money for other sorts of things. But what one of the interesting points about this is that uh, 36% of uh, millenniums, and there's a lot of them, there's 72 million of them, and 54% of Gen Z, which is 67 million, that's a big number, support the funding of the police. Yeah, right, exactly. You know, you got younger people coming up and and they are now, you know, sort of um, colored by this attitude about uh, about police and police work. And I don't know how you change that attitude with that particular segment of the population. You're talking about 140 million, talking about 40 or 50 percent of 150 million people have that attitude. It's a, it's an incredible statistic, and it it helps underscore how much work we have to do. Because when people are willing to come to that conclusion quickly, based on really no knowledge or relevant experience, um, you know, it makes the problem so much harder to solve. And, uh, yeah. you know, this is, these, you know, that percentage maybe includes uh, people who have been mistreated by the police, but for the most part, it includes people who have, you know, almost no interaction with the police and don't rely on the police in any meaningful way to keep them safe. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of the flavor of the month. But as we've learned, hopefully, God willing, these in- incidences will, uh, will subside. Um, and, uh, and perspective, perspectives will start to, you know, swing back toward the middle a little bit. Chris, would, have, have other communities adjacent to Newark also experienced a similar type of reversal, let's say, of, you know, or, or an enhancement of the police and community relationship? Yeah, so it's varied. And um, I think it's varied based on the strength of leadership. So I'll, I'll talk about the cities that have had success uh, and not, um, you know, speak poorly of the ones who haven't had the same measure of success. So, you know, again, if you look at Camden, um, where you had very strong leadership in the police department. The police department was restructured and reformed at the beginning of the Christie administration. Um, and you had, you know, politicians in Camden who really believed in changing the way um, uh, the community was policed and the way police officers behaved. Um, you know, that's an example of how it's done right. And when I was AG, we had... Um, uh, a police officer gets shot in connection with a confrontation. Uh, uh, the the officer did not was able to, <laughs> to apprehend this individual without returning fire. Uh, and I went down and visit him in the hospital in Camden, uh, and the chief at the time, uh, Chief Scott Thompson, who's another visionary and uh, just a brilliant law enforcement professional. Um, what he did was the street corner where that shooting took place, he sent one of the uh, Camden Metro's uh, ice cream trucks into that neighborhood at that police corner to engage with the community and 
and to show them that the police were there for the community. Now, you know, 50 years ago, uh, the, the police department would have sent in a team to start beating the crap out of people, you know, right? And I'm not saying right. in Camden necessarily, but that would have been kind of the knee-jerk response. You know, you're going to hurt one of ours, and we're going to hurt one of yours. The Camden, you know, Camden Metro's response is, we're going to, we're going to bring in the ice cream trucks and get in touch with folks and let them know that we still have their backs. Like that kind of approach is the kind of approach that we need to take, you know, in every city across the country. And it's not easy. It doesn't happen fast. As I said in my note, this is like, you know, there are a lot of people to connect with and there are a lot of cops, but you have to start and you have to engage and you got to do it every day. Day after day, year after year, and you can't wait for an emergency. You know, you can't be doing this in the wake of a crisis because that's when you have to draw on the trust, right? That's when Newark had this trust built up. And so when they were worried about violent protests, they're able to draw on that trusting relationship and keep things under control. Um, a lot of cities didn't have it. You know, New York City, frankly, didn't have it in the same way. Uh, and, and leadership that, you know, didn't exist in de Blasio. Does that leadership also uh, translate into sort of an ancillary issue of police corruption? I know it's not as, you know, front page and, you know, a top of the fold issue, but I can tell you from a personal experience, I've, I've had three run-ins with police corruption in the United States, in Chicago, in Georgia, and in New York. And I had two in Russia and China that were very similar. And so wow. it's not just a, it's not just a U.S. problem. I think it, it, it permeates, you know, many societies. And yeah. you know, what, what's your take on, on, on that issue? Well, you know, again, it's the accountability side of the equation, right? And, um, you can't, you can't say to a community, look, we want you to trust us unless we're willing to say at the same time that we are going to take care of the individuals who don't follow the rules. Meaning, you know, we're going to recognize the fact that there are bad cops out there. And when we find one, we're going to take appropriate action. It's got to, you know, you can't, you can't have one without the other. And right. so, you know, on the corruption side, there's always going to be corruption. There's going to be corruption in the legal business. There's going to be corruption in the law enforcement business. Um, I'm sure there's no corruption in the media business, but, um, you know, you find it pretty much everywhere. The important thing is, um, you know, the leaders need to, you know, not look the other way uh, and need to, frankly, make examples out of the folks who cross the line. You talked about, uh, you know, uh, you know, fraud and corruption. Aren't you involved with uh, some cases related to PPP loan fraud? Yeah, we're seeing an awful lot of that. And, you know, having having um, lived through Sandy here in Sandy, uh, the uh, superstorm that wiped out uh, short communities here in New Jersey and a number of uh, coastal communities in New York, the aid that came uh, after Sandy, the federal aid, was similar in a lot of ways to the federal relief that came through the CARES Act uh, following the pandemic. And I, we probably prosecuted 150 cases relating to Sandy aid fraud. Mm-hmm. And so when when the money was, you know, we're talking about passing this these aid bills, I, we came out very early and said, like, okay, you know, get ready. Because when this kind of money starts to flow, the fraudsters are going to be there. And, uh, and, and they've been there in force, right? And, and, and so, and we're only starting to hear 
about uh, the cases that, you know, were the most outrageous. You know, the, the person who just made a company up and then bought a Ferrari uh, with the aid that he got. Those, those are the really obvious cases. They're going to be in lots of cases, and these will be going on for years. The pandemic will be a memory, and we'll still be litigating these fraud cases. That's why they're all moving to Montana, Arnie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not because of the real estate and the climate. They can hide out. Well, let me ask you, you do, you do securities work. That's one of the focus areas of your practice. What What's your thought about the whole cryptocurrency and, um, you know, well, Bitcoin and blockchain and how that all fits into things? I mean, there's a lot of people speculating in that industry. Now, and I mean billions of dollars worth, and and uh, from a securities perspective, what, what do you think the issue is, and how do you think it's going to you know work itself out? Yeah, so um, you know, I'm not an expert. Um, we we have experts at the firm who spend all of their time uh, on uh, more on the business side of right. cryptocurrency markets, right. um, but you know, look, I mean, it's it's. In many ways, it's, you know, it's like the new underworld, uh, right. right? You know, when I, I you know, I had a, a, a client approach me, um, you know, was being extorted uh, recently. And, of course, you know, how is the, how is the extortion payment going to be made? You know, in some, in some cryptocurrency. I mean, it just, so much of it is hard for, you know, me uh, to understand. And I think really difficult for the public to understand. And so again, you've got enormous flows of, uh, of value and wealth, you know, with a, with a, in a medium that so few people understand. Again, the fraudsters are, are lining up and we're seeing the cases, you know, right. they're, they're rolling in with some regularity, but how that's all going to shake out, uh, from a regulatory point of view is, is, uh, you know, not anybody. Let's do a quick break. Our guest is Chris Perino. He is former attorney general of the state of New Jersey and the chairman of the litigation department at Lowenstein Sandler in New Jersey and the Newark Police Foundation. Back after this. If you came across a child struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes, their age, the way they speak? Would you recognize a 13-year-old boy who gets into fights at school? Not because he's a boy but because he's hungry? Or a two-year-old girl who cries all night? Not because she's sick, but because she went to bed without enough to eat. Or maybe a nine-year-old boy who hopes a friend invites him to a sleepover? Not for fun, just so he can have dinner. Or a 15-year-old girl who goes for walks over lunch so her friends won't know she doesn't have anything to eat? I am the one in seven American children who struggle with hunger. Kids you pass by every day, but never knew we're hungry. I am child hunger in America. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 food banks strong. Mr. Rogers says look for the helpers. You can always find people who are helping. Thank you to all the first responders who put their lives in danger to help us when my brothers and sisters and mom and dad and grandpa and grandma need them. Thank you, first responders. This is what I signed up for as a first responder. I am constantly worried about being exposed to this virus and potentially bringing it back to my home and my family. 
I'm going to continue going to work day in and day out and providing help to those that need it. We look out for the helpers because they look out for us. Thank you, first responders. Thank you, first responders. Be safe, look after yourself, and look after one another. Thanks. Learn how you can help first responders in your community by texting BRAVE to 24365. Hi, this is with our guest, Chris Perino. You know, as Attorney General, um, you had a a, a much broader portfolio to deal with all sorts of things. And I wanted you to just get a quick comment on how many Attorney General's are backing lawsuits about voter fraud when voter fraud is an infinitesimal problem, and uh, but it continues to garner so much support. Yeah, look, you know, I don't, I don't know how many attorneys general are are uh, focused on voter fraud uh, and and prosecuting cases actively. Um, all I can tell you is that New Jersey, we you know on election day would send out. Remember I mentioned we had about 500 lawyers in the divisional law on the civil side. We'd send out about 175 of them. We put them in polling places to make sure that, you know, everything was being run on the up and up. And if there was an issue or a dispute, you had a lawyer there who, if necessary, could take things to court. Look, I, I you know, as attorney general, did not have an instance that I'm aware of um, of fraud during an election in New Jersey. Uh, at least one that, that, you know, was, uh, significant enough to, to come to my attention. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it wasn't a problem that, uh, that I had to personally address. Chris, if folks want to get involved and, um, learn more about the Newark Police Foundation or find out how to get in uh, touch with that group, what should they do? So, uh, the easiest way would be to, to reach out to me, um, at the law firm. It's Chris Perino, and my email is cperino, P-O-R-R-I-N-O, at Lowenstein, L-O-W-E-N-S-T-E-I-N.com. If you're interested in in helping out, there are lots of ways in which you can um, and lots of ways in which you you could provide assistance, not only to the police, but also to the communities that the police serve. So we'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. It's been great having you on the show. We can talk for hours about all these issues, but, and you're an excellent spokesperson for what's going on in New Jersey. It's a, it's a pleasure, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. And, you know, you call me anytime. Give me a few minutes' notice. I'm, I'm glad to come back on. Fantastic. Thanks, right, Chris. Arnie, I'll see you next week. Thanks, next Chris. Week, Scott. All right, Scotty. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to What Do You Know?, I can't wait for the next show, Scott. I'm excited too, Arnie. If you'd like to suggest a guest, send me an email at scottrichman at townsquaremedia.com. We'll see you next week. And thanks for listening.